Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton. I'm the founder of Automated Creative and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week or so I have the pleasure and the privilege to interview one of our industry's leaders and this week I'm happy to say is no different. I have Joe Comiskey who is Head of Digital and Media for the UK for Beersdorf. So Joe, for anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't know who you are or what you do, could you give us all an overview? Yeah, of course. So hi everyone, I'm Joe. Um, I've been at Beersdorf now for the last two and a half years, uh, heading up their digital and media teams, which is a lot of fun. And prior to that, I was at Unilever, where I went straight from university uh, and spent 10 very happy years um, there too. Uh, so I suppose I had quite an unusual journey in terms of how I got there. I always thought I was going to go into teaching um, for probably the whole of secondary school and even the beginning of university. My thought was I'm probably going to go and want to be a teacher. Every teacher I then spoke to said don't do it. Like it's full of paperwork. <laughs> it's not the, the actual teaching of the kids which is the part where I'd probably get the most energy from is such a small part of the role now. Um, so I had a little bit of a crisis in terms of what do I do. So basically applied for lots of um, management and kind of graduate programs at companies. So everything from you know Unilever ended up to EE um, to HSBC, went through various assessment centres, some good, some terrible. Um, what but was the worst thing that happened in an assessment centre? I think the worst thing was um, when I went through one assessment centre and they set the tone of the day by saying the 16 of you here we're only going to offer one of you a role. That's the mindset you need to go into the assessment centre with, which was incredibly different to any of the other ones. And suddenly, you know, an assessment centre where normally the tasks and things they give you are working groups, come up with a solution on this, and they want to see how you work as a team. It's at a very different dynamic. And I came out of the day thinking, I don't want to work in this organisation. Um, and that's... I. You know, a big piece of advice to give to anyone doing an assessment centre, it's two-way, including people that now, you know, when I was at Unilever and we had the graduate scheme there and people coming to Beiersdorf, use interviews, use assessment centres as a two-way process. If you feel it's gone terribly or you're uncomfortable with what you're being asked to do, it's probably the wrong organisation. So it's uh, there was a good learning for me there quite early on. And when they called me up from that company and said, oh, sorry, you haven't got it, I was kind of like, yeah, good which I'm sure to them sounded a bit like, okay, you didn't get it, there's no need to be like, you didn't want it anyway, but yeah. I kind of knew at that point that I didn't. Um, the bit that was difficult for me was my degree was in theology. Um, so then coming across and taking a theology degree and explaining why I'd then want to work in business was an interesting one, I think. What was your explanation? Well, you know, it didn't, it didn't require any bullshitting. For me, it was quite simple, which is I did theology because I'm really interested in how people's beliefs change what they do. So it a, for me, it was a, a kind of no-brainer to then think, well, actually, if you're going to something like marketing or advertising, ultimately what you're trying to do is change behaviour. Uh, and really understand people. So I still think that had my school have done psychology as uh, an A-level, I would have done that. Um, but instead I did religious studies and actually that taught me a lot. And I think I was quite lucky uh, going through university in my final year of doing a dissertation, um, which I did on the impact that religion had on George Bush's administration. I woke up one morning to a headline from The Guardian. There was a direct quote from George Bush saying, God told me to invade Iraq. I thought that is a chapter already written and sorted <laughs> for me. So um, timing wise, it worked out very fortunately. But no, that, that that's the reason why for me, marketing 
is so exciting because it's really about understanding people. So, slight mirror with myself, I did religious studies as well, uh, and philosophy at, at school, and I did uh, philosophy at, at university as well. But um, I never, I never really made that link before. But it, that is very interesting about the relationship between belief and action. So you've you've brought theology to Unilever, and you've now brought theology to to Beersdorf. So let's stay on the student bit. Like, what other advice would you give to students who want to get into the industry? I would say be really curious. I think one of the key things that you need to look for when you're going into any job is a natural curiosity in what the job involves anyway I think it's just being curious around on what does your day-to-day involve but it's almost being curious around how does that company run um, what does the culture feel like culture is a massively important part um, there are various companies that do very similar things to kind of both Nivea and Unilever I wouldn't necessarily want to work at all of them because of how the culture is. And I think it's being curious on that. Find people that work in those um, different industries and areas and ask them questions. I think it's a really important part um, of going in. Um, I'd also then, um, you know, if it's in marketing, you can get experience through talking to anyone. So all of us are impacted by marketing in some way. And in, in a lot of ways, once you're in the industry, it's much harder to give an objective view on this. So before you get in is a great time. Think about campaigns that have impacted you. Ones that you've seen that you think I probably wouldn't buy that product, but that you've noticed, like why is it that you notice them? When it comes to things like interviews, you're going to be most likely speaking to marketers who want to understand the what's next, what's new, um, and you can give them a real good insight. As much as anyone that's been in the industry um, for a longer period of time, I think for me it's about understanding what's different. You know, you've remembered it. How can you take that forward? So how do you manage your own curiosity? Because it's very different to being at the start of a career where you're like, oh, where does my natural interest take me? Is it it this platform or is it this this practice? How do you manage or not manage your curiosity now? Do you put yourselves put yourself in difficult situations or do you read or like how how do you make sure that you're curious about the right things or have I got it all wrong? No, no, I think you're 100% right. It's, it's, it's often quite difficult to put yourself in the head of a consumer um, because you're already thinking about it from, uh, okay, well, how would you do that? And I think one of the things that's really difficult when you've been in the industry for a while is you can get into a mindset, oh, we tried that before, so it doesn't work. Um, there's lots of examples of things that have come um, that haven't been perceived to work that actually maybe have come at the wrong point or for the wrong reasons. For me, it's around having this attitude of test and learn. It's a big kind of thing that I also push into my team as well, which is if we're not really failing at anything, then we're probably not testing or pushing hard enough. Um, Especially in the world of digital within marketing where I am, um, there's a lot more opportunity for that. We've never been in a time where um, there's been this amount of change um, within the industry, if I think from with both my kind of media and digital hat on, um, I still find it weird, and I'll probably come back to in a second the fact that digital still sits as a separate, but that's another thing. But when I'm thinking about my role with these different hats on, you suddenly go, well, actually, the media landscape is changing tremendously, um, and it adds some complexity. You know, if I think about, it, it's very easy to spend, you know, a few hundred thousands booking TV ads. Um, it's probably a couple of phone calls, maybe an email or so. 
um, and there you've got a TV campaign budget. But then if you start to think about all the choices you've got within digital, spending that across maybe 10 different platforms, each with their own nuances of how you want to use it, suddenly that becomes a lot more complex. Um, so for me, you have to keep learning. You know, I'm, I can't say that I'm a regular TikTok user, um, but... Oh, you know, I am. Now you are? It's, okay. it's on my home screen. It's, I'm like, I'll be honest, I'm forcing myself into it. And and it's just brutal. I, 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 I got into the, the industry around the time that social really kicked off. And, and I was interested in social as a just a user. And I was also building a career in, in the industry. So those two things were... The whole thing was new and social was new, so it didn't like it didn't really make any difference. There was nothing for me to really learn because I hadn't learned anything at that point. Whereas now, so 12, 15 years later, I'm now being forced to put myself in the mind of someone who is much, much younger than me, who's got no interest in Facebook or maybe even Instagram. So how, how have you responded to the challenge of getting your head around TikTok? Well, actually, I mean, my nephews are a tremendous source of inspiration for me. So I'm very lucky that I've got uh, nephews who are kind of 10 and 14 and they are great for bouncing ideas. Up. In fact, the 14 year old will often come to me with his own ideas and say, oh, I've just seen this. You might want to try uh, this and this, you know, and I like say such as can, can uh, such as I think some of the things, you know, I've got my 10 year old nephew is constantly on TikTok, he creates his own all the time. You know, his his goal is to be TikTok famous. So I'm then <laughs> trying to understand from him okay what is he doing like what is it that's motivating him to drive some of the content and what is it and they say i'm not a regular tiktok user in the form of creation but it's highly addictive to watch i can completely understand why people go on the platform you know you can go on there to look for what you think is going to be a minute and suddenly you've watched 20 videos and you know half an hour later you're still going seeing uh, what's coming through so for me it's very much around understanding um the kind of youth culture within that i think there's going to be you know, lots of different opportunities. If you think about something like esports, esports has come from nowhere um, and now multi-billion um, pound business and brands going, well, how do we how do we get on the back of that? And, you know, that's it. there's challenges from all around the industry in terms of what do you do to get into that space? You know, we can all go and throw a product in the background, but is that really the most authentic way of kind of getting into these spaces? So you've got, you've got to think differently in terms of how you want to, how you want to try those. So how do you think TikTok has managed to carve itself out as such a niche independently of the, the big platforms? So they, Google and Facebook and whoever else could could have easily done it from a technical perspective. It's put, you know, the initial build was probably relatively straightforward. But yet they're, they're you know, whatever, like was, I think I read a stat the other day that 60% of all under 20 year olds in the UK, whatever, insert, insert stat. But how have they managed to do it? How have they managed to get such market share in, in the face of such competition? Um, I think their proposition in terms of what they drive is quite different. So you know, if you think about the other networks, maybe with the exception of something like Snapchat, most of what's in there isn't necessarily around just providing that fun and inspiration. On TikTok, the platform is very much around fun and entertainment. On the others, it's mixed in with trying to put in social, uh, your status updates, news that's mixed in with there. Um, and I also think, you know, we've seen a lot of the negativity around the other platforms um, in terms of data sharing, data um, privacy issues. I think they've also ridden the wave of people moving out of other platforms. I think there's also a piece of their new. Yeah, like, I, you know, the fact that I'm on Facebook probably makes it a bit less cool 
uh, for my nephews to want to be on Facebook versus they're on you know the what's new and the what's next. I think TikTok has been phenomenal in the growth um, that we've seen come across. Um, but I think you know they've iterated. You know it wasn't initially called TikTok. I think they've iterated their offering and they've gone purely down that entertainment route, especially starting with the music and kind of one or two, you know, functionalities or filters essentially that you know Instagram etc. could and do have parts of. But they've gone no, we're just going to focus on this one piece, and they've done it really well and really strongly. I think you know now they're they're seeing the benefit on it. So we didn't plan to talk about TikTok for yeah. the majority, but uh, we we have. Um, so, what has been the best investment of your time, energy, or money in your career in the last few years? Um, I would say time with people, which I know is probably going to sound really cliched, but what it hasn't been is kind of sat reading books or um, sat in meetings. It's been the one-on-one conversation. So I think for me, the people bit's really important and it's meeting new people. So um, I've been fortunate enough to get to quite a lot of conferences, um, South by Southwest, like one of my favorites to go to because they're not just trying to sell you, um, you know, what's the latest phone, what's the latest gadget, what's the latest tech. It's about thought leaders. And for me, getting that inspiration is awesome and it's great to go and hear the talks but it's also great to go and have the networking afterwards meet different interesting completely varied people um from you know around the world all in one place and actually within that fairly like-minded i would say i think the you know the people that are there are ambitious they're keen to learn more that's where i feel i've kind of learned the most i've made lots of kind of good connections um through places like and, that. And you paid for that yourself to go to South by and did your own holiday. Um, so yeah, I, I've had a mixture um, right. throughout it, but um, haven't always had to take it as holiday. I think the benefit back to the businesses that I've worked at has kind of been um, apparent in part of that. But yeah, I mean, I enjoy that. I think that's, it's it's the, what, the week of the year where I have to say to my wife, this is the week that I need kind of, it's for me, it's not a holiday, um, in case she's listening, technically, it's not technically a holiday, but it doesn't mean, um, you know, I don't have a lot of fun in kind of doing that. Yeah. Um, it's a hard week, you know, there's lots of meetings during the day, yes, there's parties in the evening, but all of it's kind of networking, so yeah, it's it's a pretty full-on week. Yeah, I'd, I've been lucky enough to go a few times, and, and having set up my own business, it's been difficult to carve out any time to do anything, really, um, and I look forward to the day when I can go back to do it because I think I did three years in a row or, or something, three, four, or maybe missed one or two. But there was one talk that changed the whole year. And I remember having artificial intelligence explained to me and I was like, right, okay. And if I hadn't seen that talk, then you know, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. So yeah, I, I agree. Well, I've never invested my own money in it. It's always been on someone else's dollar. But uh, you know, if you can make that work. So... It's been really interesting to get some background on you. Thank you for telling me all those stories. But we're at the halfway point now, so we're going to talk about your shiny new object, which isn't TikTok. Uh, but it, you've described it as new kids on the block. What is that? Yep, so I'm, I'm not going to start singing. So for, any, for anybody listening, don't, don't worry about that. So no, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to... Um, to the to the group there. Um, for me, new kids on the black. You know, I've worked with a. I've been fortunate enough to work for two um, huge successful companies. Um, and I think one of the things when you're in big companies like the Unilevers, like the Buyers Doors of the World, is um, clearly lots of businesses want to work with them. And generally, the kind of contracts and and people that you have in place tend to be from other big and successful businesses. 
But for me, Nuclears on the Block mm. is around trying to cut through that to say, how do you get big businesses to be able to work with small and medium enterprises? Most of the competitors that we're seeing um, within um, kind of the sectors that we play in are smaller businesses. They're normally digital first businesses um, that don't have the budget or luxury to work with some of the bigger companies and are getting there either working with other smaller companies or through testing and learning themselves. And I always think if you're working with other huge companies, you can miss out on some of the innovation and, and new that's there. And I think that's, for me, it's not about saying turning our back on some of the big partnerships, not at all, but it's how do you do that in a way that also allows some of the new and smaller ideas in. You know, And that's, from an innovation perspective, there's also a cost perspective. So without, I'm not going to give away any names on this, but I do know that I worked with a smaller company that it turns out had done some work for a bigger company I'd worked for, and I was chatting to them around it, and I found out the difference in cost to what had been paid versus what they um, paid to the other big company that had basically outsourced the work to them was about fivefold in difference. So um, there's some definite financial um, benefits that can be had from it, but for me, it's getting to the people and the talent that's there and the ideas. Um, I had a great piece of advice from uh, someone at Unilever before in terms of, you know, there's that much. My inbox is full every day of different companies going, try this, you know, we're brand new or try this. We've got a proven track record in these 50 companies. Wanting to work with smaller companies is brilliant in, in theory, but you've got to try and think of how you can structure that in a way that means you kind of get through the noise to the stuff that really works. And I've got kind of three um, principles on that, which are first, best and unique. So... When, I, when I'm assessing anything, the kind of first test, I kind of put it through my head is, is it first? So is it genuinely new? Is there no one else doing this? Um, is it best? You know, is this a best in class example? It's fine if they're doing something someone else has done, but they're doing it in a better way or unique. Um, what have they brought to that process, to that idea, um, to that product that makes them stand out, that offers some differentiation? So Unless you can say, unless I can say yes to one of those three, it's probably one that gets a reply that says, "Sorry, but not something I can pick up at this point." You know, if I can get if I can get a yes on one of those, that kind of takes it through to the next stage where it's myself or maybe going to the team and saying, "Right, can we have a look at this? How do we take this a bit further?" So, you mentioned you you were at Unilever for a long time. Now, my perspective on Unilever innovation is they kind of invented that relationship between big businesses and startups with the foundry was that something you had experience with or did you work independently of the foundry can you tell me about your experience of working with startups and how does it work well and when does it fall over so yeah with the foundry um it's an interesting one unilever is a huge business so actually a lot of the work that i did was was fairly separate to the foundry to begin with and actually before foundry really got set up and off the ground um so the first place where I started on this was I actually went to a talk uh, and got talking to a guy Matt Evans who works at the Hoxton Mix Collective um, uh, over in Old Street and was talking to him around the challenges of how do I you know often I have a brief um, that I want to get um, an answer to but it can be really difficult to then find the right person I've got lots of companies that are saying I can answer this challenge to you but I I don't necessarily have the challenge that they're trying to um, fix. I wanted somewhere I could go and said, here's my challenge or here's the, the brief or question I've got. How can you find people to help this? And I think um, 
Matt was great in terms of their business model um, at its core is um, office space. So they have lots of companies that come to them and rent desks or even just rent a post box um, from them. And what they've done is then utilise that into a network that says, well, not only can we help you with that and you can rent the space from us, but we'll also then create a network, which means when we then start working with some of the bigger companies and, you know, I was really pleased Unilever kind of pioneered with them this approach where we then said, well, you've got that huge database and the net and the links in the um, in you know, the local community, I think, around um, Silicon Roundabout, as, as I suppose it, it was called until it's kind of expanded out further. And I was able to send briefs across and get very varied response very quickly. So you you drop a brief into the into that kind of melting pot, and yeah. Then you, but then how did you deal with the scale? I mean, being Unilever, I would assume you'd have 10, 20, 30 businesses pitching God knows what just to hope. They yeah, can and something. I think, and that's where the relationship with Hoxton Mix is important because I think they then became the first filter point to be able right. to go. Okay, we've got these, and there were some parts around. Does the business that all the people that are coming have the experience, the right people? Um, it is the idea at its core but often I would see kind of 10, 20 um, products that we then say you know yes to maybe two of them and take them to a next stage so we'd have kind of a pitch afternoon where everyone would get two minutes basically to then come and say tell us what it is. And what, what was the killer thing for a business to pitch in those two minutes? What was always like those guys were brilliant? Have you hit the brief and have you brought it to life? So I think stuff that's very theoretical is often hard to necessarily get. And I think, you know, you're talking to marketeers, most of, most of us don't have an in-depth knowledge of the technical side of how this works. It's why we work with other businesses. And actually, why often the approach of a bigger business-to-business relationship works because they've got the account managers that can do the translation into here's what it actually means. So I think where they've been able to be kind of clear on the what's the business benefit uh, and normally stuff that's visual tends to work better anyway I think you know in any pitch situation the more you can bring that to life the the kind of better that becomes um, but it's also around mobilizing the right people from Unilever in that situation to be in the room and to get the buy-in early so but it's test small so how do you do, do how do you do it now do you still test small is that it, do you do you have a similar relationship with the Hoxton mix business or do yeah so, like I've, so I've done, I've, I have done I have done some pieces with them not not to the same uh, scale as at Unilever but yeah there's, there's still been um, some smaller pieces that we've been able to get through. I, I suppose I can talk about one of the most successful from a Unilever side that was worked on, and that yeah, was um, we actually got to a point in the business where we'd seen the success of doing this dropper briefing project, and we wanted to do something that also created a bit more PR value and also a genuine kind of relationship back with some of these um, individuals. And I say individuals because you know, within the melting pot, within the people that would want to come and pitch this, sometimes they'd be a company that said, you know what, we can also, um, this is our main product, but we think we've got something we could build for this. And sometimes it would be, they had an independent designer, an independent developer that would come together and go, right, what can we kind of do on this? Basically hacking an idea together. So we decided to put on a hackathon. So we actually ran three hackathons um, across London. And there was a few objectives clearly wanting to get to an idea but what I did was invite a lot of people from Unilever to them as well so you'd have an event that would have Unilever employees some of our bigger partners um, some declined to come um, won't mention any names but declined to come on the basis that it wouldn't look great for them if they didn't win 
um, the hackathon, and then I lots of independent and smaller companies that would all come. We'd mix the teams up, so the, the you know if they came as a startup team of four, they could obviously stay together. But we'd throw a Unilever person in, which is so that through the ideation process. A, it helps, you know, it's an upskilling piece for Unilever. Hopefully for them as well, they learned something in terms of the big business, but we'd give a brief that people would work on. And one of the briefs we gave um, was around um, the role of voice. Uh, and the winning idea came um, from a company called Apollo, and it was essentially to um, develop a recipe app for Alexa. Um Unilever's got a wealth of recipes globally because of all the brands and things that it had. Um, that was one of the winning ideas. Took it forward, actually took it to Amazon. And uh, apologies to Jamie Oliver on this, but we then became the um, default recipe app on Alexa. So when anyone asked for a recipe, it defaulted through to that skill. Does um, it still? Did, did it maintain that? So I knew, I, I thought to myself, I should check this <laughs> yeah. before I go on and do. It definitely had six months ago. Um, but, you know, I, that's an area that at the time, that probably sounds quite basic now, but this is kind of three or four years ago where at the time this was a new and emerging technology. We didn't even really know, you know, we sold stuff on Amazon, but we didn't really know who, who do we even speak to at Amazon about yeah, the fact we've right. got this idea, we've got this built now, like, who can help us? And I think, you know, when they saw it, they were really impressed, so it worked. So what advice would you give to someone who works at a brand who potentially doesn't have the the resources or the budgets of a, a Unilever or a Beiersdorf, but wants to genuinely work with startups, they want to push themselves, they want to be curious, they want to learn. What are the steps that you would suggest that a, a brand who's not done it before takes to making startups work for their business? Yeah, I think find find the right partner to go with. I think it's really tough. Part of it is around the network. So the way I got into this was I literally went onto Google Campus's website and found out what talks they had. I thought, okay, well, I know a lot of kind of small companies go and work there. What talks and speakers have they got on there? I went to one of them. I mean, that, that's how I found um, Matt at Hoxton Mix. That, that was literally just a chance meeting that became more fruitful in terms of the work. But I would say get out to these kind of networking events. You know, it's the cost of a train ticket down to London if you're not based there, but there's lots around the country. Um, and then speak to people. I also think, you know, when I was dropping briefs into Hoxton Mix, there wasn't a cost until we decided we wanted to take a project forward. So I think, you know, if you've got an idea, put it out there. You know, if you've got social channels, put it on some of your social channels. Like, give it... Often, I think we really... Um, can be very uptight around, well, actually, are we talking to consumers on this? Are we talking to... You know, I think lots of consumers would love to be able to give the opportunity to kind of talk to some of their favourite brands. Well, think about the channels, you know, is LinkedIn the be a better place for doing it in than a Facebook post, for example? And so so that's great advice on how to fish for talent and yep. to network. But what advice would you give to a brand to set themselves up internally to, to help integrate a new technology? Set some budget aside for test and learn. So I think it's really and one of the, the most important things that I've done anywhere I've worked is to make sure that there is a budget pot there that doesn't have to deliver for definite the number for the year. And I think that could be big or small, you know, work with what you've got. I think it, for me, it's thinking around the minimum viable product. Sometimes it might just be you put out, you pay for some paid search on an idea that doesn't exist just to see if people will click on it. You can then put a page that says, thanks for clicking. You know, actually, we were, we were just gauging interest. But if you want to leave your email address, 
blah, 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 we can get back to you if we take it forward. But sometimes just something small that has very little cost. Um, ask people on the channels that you have. But it's getting the business to agree that you've got this pot of money at the beginning that is around test and learn, yeah? I once um, had the pleasure of meeting someone that worked innovation at John Lewis uh, and his KPI was that one in every hundred products uh, or tests that they did needed to work. Now, I never quite got to a luxury in any business that only one in a hundred needed to work. But if you can start to get to a point where, you know, the one in 10, the one in five um, work, suddenly you hopefully have a bit more trust that you can then spend that budget without the fear. I think most of us live in fear of there's a number you're trying to hit, there's an ROI, how can you yeah. prove that on every amount of money? But how, so I agree with you, I'm an innovation person, so that's fine. But how do you go into the, the CEO and say, look, even one in five of these projects is going to come off and I want some failure budget? or one in 10 or one in 100. I mean, like, I, I think I know who you're talking about, John Lewis, but anyway, um, you earn that over time, right? You yeah. Know, so for that, it's a bit like uh, when a record label signs some artists, they'll sign 10 and one will make all the money or, you know, the same with books and movies and all the rest of it. So how do you, what are the other benefits that, that work failing with a startup, for argument's sake, can bring to a business that you can, so someone who listens to this podcast can go, look, these five things might not work, but we're going to get X, Y, and Z. What are those other benefits? There's a team development piece in there, definitely. I think if you can get an entrepreneurial mindset, you'll see the benefits elsewhere in the business because suddenly people become more curious and more willing to try something that's different within there but for me it's about really starting small you know it could be as simple as doing an a b test on two posts you put out on facebook having that as a case study that said you know we put two posts out turns out this one worked this one didn't here's why you start to develop some of these as kind of case studies to go you know you've probably spent hundreds if less just creating some variants and then going this is the power of what testing does Here's how we can get the benefits. The, ben the difference between this and this was I got four times as many clicks, which was worth X to us in traffic or conversion if you've got uh, e-commerce on your site. I think, but you do, it, it's a journey, yeah? You can't go in straight away and be like, I need 20% of the budget that we've got for the year set aside for this. It might be that you go in and say, I want to have a small amount on this, or you just go and do it, yeah? I think you can, if you're spending a couple of hundred pounds, I think you can ask for the forgiveness later if you're creating a couple of different posts. Brilliant. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much for that, Joe. Uh, you echoed so many things that um, I, I believe in, and it was exciting to be reminded about a lot can, of those things. Can I add one more bit? Of course. On it, yeah, yeah, super of course quick, you can. Go on. which is around measurement. I think make sure that you've set what the KPIs are up front, because if you don't set the KPIs in place, then at the end of it, you can come back with a number that says, I think this works, someone else says it doesn't. You know, having that set up. Um, you can even, I mean, you can even test and learn within the side of measurement. I gave a brief out that said, how can we find out the ROI of all our media across our e-commerce platforms to right. some of the big data companies? Yeah. Nobody could come back with an answer um, or not one that we felt could get to a robust area of looking, you know, that could measure a Facebook post versus a TV ad, etc. There's lots of different models out that can be very expensive. Lots of them have limitations. Um, found a guy, ex-professor um, of mathematics from a university, uh, Bijan uh, Tabatabai is his name, worked with him on um, a few different projects at Unilever and suddenly, you know, you're there presenting in front of Asda and Asda is saying, you know our ROI better than us. 
you know, and that's from a small company. Um, so AIT Analytics, fantastic. But you know, that then allowed me to be able to show the proof of why stuff works. Now, clearly, this is an investment to do the measurement piece, but generally, that's a bit of an easier sell internally to go. This is going to help us for the future to really understand how we can develop it forward. So yeah, KPIs is a is a key bit and get the buy-in up front. If you otherwise you go there with what you think is success, you might say this is five times as many clicks. If they then say, yeah, but that only represented a hundred clicks, and suddenly what you thought was, you know, you've deliberately started small, 20 to 100 is great if you, you know, normally only get 20 clicks. But if their view is then well a hundred's nothing, suddenly you're back to square one. Once again, man, thank you. That's brilliant. I, I really want to. I really want to carry on talking to you, uh, but unfortunately, we're we're out of time. How could people get in touch with you if they wanted to? What is a a good way to reach out to you? LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, you could look at my Twitter, but you'll see that I use it generally for complaining to companies for doing uh, pretty poor service. But if you do want to go onto my Twitter, it's at Joe underscore Brum. Um, that's at Joe underscore Brum, B-R-U-M. I'm from Birmingham. Not that I, It's not that I've got a big fascination with cars. Um, but otherwise, yeah, Joe Comiskey on LinkedIn. And if someone writes to you on LinkedIn and you absolutely will get targeted by salespeople after doing this podcast... What makes a really great message on LinkedIn? What's going to get a response out of you? Um, I can tell you what won't get a response and seems to be becoming more common is please don't send calendar invites for meetings. It seems that now people really? don't send emails. They just send a calendar invite to me and said, here's a time for us to talk about X, Y, and Z. That will, oh, always, that will always get declined just on the principle of don't yes. just put time in my diary. Very um, I would say... Come with what what you think the business benefit is or just ask. I think some people say, I want to get an hour in to come and present you on this. The best way is like, I'm not going to be able to spend an hour going through with everyone. If you just say, can I have two minutes on the phone and, and have an elevator pitch on that? I think I'll very quickly get an understanding if that's something that I want to take. But, you know, sometimes the answer is going to be no on it, which is really tough. But I obviously have to prioritise with, budget, resource, team, etc. Um, I suppose the, the best ones that come through are the ones that are very short and succinct with, here's the business benefit, is this an area that you'd be interested in? Brilliant. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you.